The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing Nathan Rourke's greatness. Dane Evans's turnovers. Duke Williams' mediocrity. Andrew Harris's dissatisfaction. Brandon Banks's outbursts. And Ottawa's winless start. But first, the Edmonton Elks made the decision to give rookie Canadian QB Trey Ford his first career start on Canada Day, no less. And the team's 2022 first-round pick rose to the occasion by helping his team earn their first victory of the season. What did you make of Ford's performance? You know, it wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination and the numbers aren't going to jump off the page particularly as a passer is 15 of 26 for 159 yards a touchdown and an interception but I thought he was relatively collected he carried himself well uh, in the pocket in the huddle he took command of that team and his teammates said as much after the fact and the biggest thing that Trey Ford did for the Edmonton Elks is when things started to break down, he was able to extend drives by using his legs. And I don't think we've seen the best of Trey Ford's legs yet in the CFL. He's still got far more in the tank. But even in what he was able to show us, six carries, 61 yards, the guy's good for a first down every single time he's flushed from the pocket. And he used his legs uh, very intelligently. Uh, in my mind, right? He he didn't he made an effort to go through his reads first and then use them as a last resort. To me, that's promising for a young quarterback that's as athletic as he is. Certainly, lots of room to improve. If these are the numbers we see for the rest of the year, nobody's going to be talking about Trey Ford as a, an MOP candidate. But it's a good place to start for an extremely young and inexperienced player at the professional level. It looks like he's made the speed adjustment rather quickly at the CFL level. And I would imagine that's come from a decent amount of practice reps, especially in training camp in that close battle to start the season as a starter 
with Nick Arbuckle, who ultimately got the nod, but they go to Ford in week four. And to me, what jumped out the most is he wasn't skittish. And JC, you kind of alluded to it there. He wasn't leaving the pocket scared. Like he was leaving the pocket with a plan, looking downfield still, and then of course, ending up running multiple times. And the other thing that really jumped out to me is he outran angles on Simone Lawrence multiple times. And we know Lawrence for better part of a decade now, if not longer, has been one of the top defensive players in the CFL. And the fact that he outran Lawrence tells you that Lawrence underestimated his speed. We know from the stopwatches, at least, that he runs in the four fours. Now, that time in terms of track time is different than actual how fast you run in the game sometimes with some players. And it looks like Ford can translate that over to the CFL level. So that really stood out to me because he looked composed. He was never rattled. He was never, never yelling at himself, excuse me, or yelling at any of his teammates. And there were a couple throws in there where you go, Ooh, I can see the arm strength flash a little bit. And also his receivers didn't necessarily help him out. There were some drops there. And the one that stands out to a lot of people is the interception, but all that ball needed to have was more air and, you know, five or 10 more yards, which he's got the arm strength to do and it's touchdown. So it's those very little things that can change the complexion of a way a single start can be viewed. So as we go through the season, we'll see how he does with those passes that are more down the field but even the fact that he made that read to Darrell Walker on the corner out it was a difficult one and they showed on TSN the replay from Ford's perspective looking at the coverage and the anticipation that he had he just needed to throw the ball out there further towards the sideline I'm sure he's watched the film multiple times to understand that so overall a solid performance it looks like he has a similar approach let's say to Nathan Rourke in terms of how They do on the field when they're between the white lines. They're not yelling and screaming. They're very measured and focused. And he has that added ability to go to the high gear that Rourke doesn't have as a runner. That said, Rourke is ahead of him right now as a passer, which is critical. But, I mean, looking at Ford in and of himself, it was a performance that the Elks can build on and one that I would imagine Chris Jones was pretty happy with after he made the move to start him. Certainly. And when you talk about the need for Trey Ford to take the next step and improve game by game in, in, in his rookie season, you know, there are a few quarterbacks I would trust more to make that progression than Trey Ford. Having had the opportunity to speak with him, to see him in person, he's an incredibly humble individual, but a very intelligent guy, a very focused and driven individual as well. He's the exact type of person who can make that jump. And you heard in his comments after the game, he knows what mistakes he made already. He's already grinding that film, making those adjustments. To be frank, I was almost a little bit surprised that he didn't get more opportunities to run uh, based on the Edmonton, Edmonton's offense. Like I, I thought they were going to put him in and try and add more wrinkles where they got him more on the move and they tried to use him more as a running quarterback. They really gave him similar stuff to what they did with Nick Arbuckle and then let his athleticism be the cherry on top. I think if they are able to adapt that offense even a little bit more to his skill set, there's another level that you can unlock from Trey Ford even before he makes the jump as a passer. And he can be a really dangerous weapon in the CFL. 
And he didn't even have James Wilder Jr. with him in the backfield either. It was obviously critical that Kenny Lawler was there to make some key catches for him, including his first career touchdown pass, which came at a time in the game that it was much needed. So those are the types of things that you want to see from young quarterbacks is how do they do in those pressure pack situations? And Ford wasn't rattled at all. And he didn't look out of place. The game never looked too fast for him. As he goes along here as a professional, you certainly want to see him fill out. There's been some personnel people on both sides of the border that have said that, that he looks a little small. If you just look at him comparing him to the rest of the players on the field, that's really the only knock against him in my mind. He threw the ball pretty well overall, and that carried over from the pro day that he went to at the University at Buffalo, where NFL scouts were impressed by his arm. So if this was a guy that had played at a big time NCAA division one program, he's likely in the NFL in all honesty. Or if you look at it the other way, from the CFL perspective, if he was an American coming up from an NCAA school, you know, if you want to go high tier D one or mid major, or even lower tier, it would be a guy that people were excited about. So the hype is certainly there because he's Canadian and it's a great aspect that you can really drive home instead of Randy Ambrosi out here campaigning to mandate globals on the roster. And I want this to be said, because we're about to talk about Nathan Rourke, how much smarter would Mr. Ambrosi look if he had came in and mandated every team to at least carry one, just one Canadian quarterback instead of two globals and spending money elsewhere outside of our country. I understand you want to make connections and you think that it will benefit Canadians to go play in these countries outside of Canada, but they were already doing that with all due respect, Mr. Ambrosi. You could have looked much smarter if you made one simple decision to mandate Canadian quarterbacks on the roster, and then you could have said, yeah, this is what I was talking about, whereas this has happened because the quarterbacks, and these two in particular, Ford and Rourke, have overcome the American bias that is there, whether other media people want to admit it or bring BS arguments to the table or not. You're absolutely right, Justin. I think the point that comes to mind for me when we talk about Canadian quarterbacks and you know potentially mandating them in the CFL and this bias that we perceive against them, you know, we are not saying that every Canadian quarterback that comes out of youth sports can be Nathan Rourke. We're not gonna have, you know every guy be an MOP, but that's not what we're asking for, right? There are tons of quarterbacks I've seen through my time watching you sports football that could have come in and managed a game as good as Trey Ford did in his first CFL start that had that ability. I mean, you look at a guy like Michael O'Connor, who's the backup in BC, and I watched every single snap of Michael O'Connor's career while I was at the University of British Columbia. Our our times overlapped perfectly. I arrived the same year he did. I left the same year he did. And what I saw from Michael O'Connor was that he was an extremely talented quarterback. But in many of the games I watched, he was not the best quarterback on the field, right? There are other guys in the Canada West alone at that time who are just as talented as Michael O'Connor, who are putting up big numbers, who could manage the offense and who could have big games, and none of them, besides Andrew Buckley, got opportunities at the CFL level. You look at a guy like Adam Sinagra, you're telling me he couldn't come in and at least be a game manager at the CFL level? Better than a guy like 
Ryan Lindley or Devil, uh, Duck Hodges, like guys that we know are not legitimate quarterbacks based on what they've already shown us at the NFL level, right? We we have evidence that those guys are not, you know, stud quarterbacks. A bad NFL quarterback does not a good CFL quarterback make. And I think everyone who's watched U Sports has seen guys who have the ability to be competent at the CFL level, right? Not necessarily stars, but competent. And when when we form the argument about whether these guys can be stars like Nathan Rourke, we do a disservice because the entry-level point to success for any disadvantaged group in any area of life should not be to have to be the most dominant player on the field. It should be to be held to the same standard as everyone else. And I think there's many Canadian quarterbacks who could achieve that coming from U Sports to the CFL. There certainly could be. And one name that comes to mind for me is Brad Sinopoli, who had a great career as a receiver, but he is taller than Nathan Rourke, was about just as fast coming out of the University of Ottawa after winning a Heck Crichton, oh, by the way, and was arguably just as elusive. Now, the arm talent might have been a little bit different, but you'd have to compare them in their day together. You know, I think it would have been relatively close. Work has certainly taken a step up in his development in terms of accuracy since he's been drafted by the Lions. So I don't think there's a big question mark there in terms of his accuracy. But all along with Sinopoli, it was talked about, well, essentially, he's going to play receiver in the league. He got a bit of a shot at quarterback with Calgary, moved on, ends up being a receiver. I feel like I played in the golden age, and yes, I'm biased, but of quarterbacking in the OUA, the Ontario University Athletics Conference, that at the time was CIS, which is now U Sports Canadian University Football. Danny Brannigan at Queen's University led the Gales to a Vanier Cup in 2009. That team was stacked, a bunch of CFLers on that roster. Brannigan essentially had a cup of coffee with the Toronto Argos. It was more of a PR stunt than anything else, to be quite honest. Michael Falds, who, and I'll say it right flat out, went to the same high school as me at John F. Ross in Guelph. Then there was a strike year. So he went up to St. Andrews College in Aurora, goes down to the University of Toledo, backs up Bruce Gradkowski for the uninitiated who was in the NFL for quite a while, carved out a decent career after playing with the Rockets. Falds was his backup. Then Falds comes up to what at the time was the University of Western Ontario and puts up some great statistics. And I can remember it at the time, Brannigan, Falds, and myself were going for that 10,000-yard mark. I mean, wins were obviously much more important, but they were stacking them up at their respective schools, and Falds didn't even get a look. Now, part of it was an unfortunate ACL injury that he suffered at the end of his career there, but he still would have been a guy that you could have brought into training camp, knows the CFL game, and would have put in the work, and I think could have been a gem in the rough a little bit just because of that injury. So there are multiple guys through the years that I have seen and experienced and even talked about this with some of them that they feel like there's a bias. I've experienced it myself. I felt like I was not getting looked at as a Canadian quarterback because I played the position as a Canadian and at a Canadian university. It was always like, well, do you want to move to defensive back or receiver? Even early in my career, I remember after my first year starting at the University of Guelph, started as a freshman early on, had a conversation with our then trainer, who was a great guy, but had been in the CFL himself as a defensive back. He said, if you want to make the league, the way that you're going to have to do it is either move to defensive back or receiver. That's just how it is. 
And I didn't like that. I wanted to fight through it. I tried to throw as much as I possibly could. In the offseason, we were fortunate to have this tent, let's call it, at the University of Guelph at this time before Stu Lang came in <laughs> to throw. And in the offseason, I would get guys there early in the morning and credit to the dudes that showed up who were receivers that ended up being CFL draft picks. Dave McCoy was a second-round pick that I was with at Guelph. Jed Gardner was a third-round pick with the Argos, who I played with at Guelph, just to name a couple. So you're around the CFL-caliber talent, and I'm sure Brannigan and Folds and Sinopoli, they might not come out and say it publicly, but they would agree that they didn't feel like they got a fair look either, whether that was just scouts coming out to their games at university or any time along in their career where they felt like they should have been able to get a shot, not given one, earned one based on their play. That's the issue now is not getting a fair, equal opportunity to play quarterback. We're certainly seeing that shift now with Rourke and Ford, but it has taken way too long. And again, I'll go back to the point. If Ambrosi or even any commissioner before him, because they all could have done it, would have mandated a team at least carrying a Canadian quarterback we could have seen the emergence of this type of star power in a big way much earlier. And it's been the storyline that has carried the CFL season to start in 2022. And it's going to be one we track throughout as Rourke and Ford go along. Well, we've talked about him already, but let's focus on him now. Canadian QB Nathan Rourke dealt with his first bit of adversity in his first season as the unquestioned starting quarterback for the BC Lions, throwing two interceptions and having a fumble forced before bouncing right back to lead a comeback win in Ottawa. How impressed were you with what Rourke did on a short week against a team off a bye on the road? Really, really, really impressed. And we got to remember that the Lions played the last game in week three at home at BC Place. Yes, it was Pacific time. Then they had to go on the road in an Eastern time zone game against a team that had multiple weeks to prepare for them. And yes, Rourke did throw his first couple interceptions of the season and had the fumble, as you mentioned, but you wanted to see, and NFL scouts are going to want to see, to be quite honest, how he was going to bounce back from adversity. And he showed it didn't rattle him at all. Comes back literally on the next drive after throwing two straight picks it's Keon Hatcher for that 70-plus yard touchdown and away the Lions go to a comeback victory. So it really showed me that Rourke can deal with different situations. The short week, going on the road, hostile environment where you're using more of your either silent counts or you're not necessarily able to communicate as well as you're used to and that he can be prepared and stay calm in those situations when the game goes against you a little bit because it would have been really easy for it all to unravel for the Lions after those back-to-back -back interceptions and away goes Ottawa with the victory. That didn't happen. And a lot of people think that touchdown pass to Hatcher was easy. It was not. It was against a blitz. Rourke stands in, takes a big shot that was not talked about enough in my mind on TSN at all. He stands there, takes a crack to the ribs, it looked like, to be quite honest, and finds Hatcher down the seam. Yes, he was wide open, but you don't know that when you're seeing a blitz coming at you right in the face. So very impressive in a lot of ways was Rourke in Ottawa. It was a really important test in my mind for Rourke as the BC Lions quarterback, because the way they play offense with Rourke, this is going to happen from time to time. There's going to be interceptions. And while the 
The first one, I think, was on Rourke. He was panicked. He shouldn't have made that throw. The second pick, which was almost a pick six, it could have been, if I, I think, if he uh, uh, rang a little bit differently on the way back. That's a situation where Rourke's got pressure in his face. He's got one read on that side. He's got to get the ball out quick. The receiver maybe doesn't come back to the ball as enough, maybe isn't aware, and the defender sits on that route and can pick it off easy. That's going to happen from time to time in that offense when those throws are dictated by what Jordan McSimmick has schemed up and defenses are going to key on it to try and force turnovers. So you have to be able to bounce back from that situation and be able to shake it off and march down the field and make a play. And that's what work did. And on that key on Hatcher touchdown, it's the exact reason why we'll be okay with some of those interceptions with those short routes that defenders can sit on because what they did on that play is every single Ottawa defender on that right side of the field (laughs) jumped up because they thought it was coming underneath with the pressure and Rourke hit him over the top to Keon Hatcher, who was wide open. That's exactly how that offense works. You set them up underneath, then you hit the big shot over the top. And it was an important testament to how this Lions team can continue to have success, even in sometimes adverse conditions. Now they know they've got a quarterback who's going to be able to stay calm, stay collected throughout it all, shake any mistakes off, and continue to keep them in games, even when all the cards are stacked against them. And the hype machine went out of control after, obviously, with Rourke and people praising him for the win, and he wanted to make sure he feels like it's the team that has helped them get out to this undefeated 3-0 start and has them set up to play the two-time defending Grey Cup champion Winnipeg Blue Bombers at BC Place in a matchup of the undefeateds. But in my mind, Rourke needs to get used to dealing with this hype. And he talked about it, that it's been difficult and it's something new. And then, you know, there were some comments on Twitter where you saw a muffin or I can't imagine how hard life is when you're being told how great you are all the time. And, you know, I get it that some people are trying to have some fun, but it's very new for him, right? You're used to, as a professional athlete, if you make it to that level, being criticized by your coaches. And if you're one of the great ones, you're going to be really hard on yourself. So if you start listening to too much how great you are, then it can affect, you know, I wondered and actually asked Rourke directly if some of the hype has fueled him or if he's blocked it out. And he immediately said, no, it doesn't fuel him. And he'd rather not be a part of it, but he understands it. Yeah, I think it's a matter of personality because there are certain guys who that hype would fuel. And I don't think that's a bad thing if that's your personality, right? I think you might have been a guy like this, Dunk. You fed off the crowd. You fed off the energy. You fed off the hype. I'm more like Rourke. I I don't like that hype, that extra expectation to be praised when I'm doing well. I like to put my head down and just do it. And I think Nathan Rourke has found the way that works for him. He showed it at the University of Ohio. For people who don't know, there was a tremendous amount of hype around Nathan Rourke in the MAC, particularly in his first season as quarterback. He was putting up crazy numbers. There was briefly a Rourke for Heisman campaign. But what he did is he learned that that wasn't for him. And he deleted all his social media every single season 
of his college career. Right at the start in August, he would delete it. He'd re-upload it in in January after the bowl game and say, hey, uh, what I've missed, uh, uh, it's been a while. Hope you guys enjoyed the season. But during that period when he had to be focused, he had to be locked in, he tuned everything out. And he's had tremendous success with it. We've seen how hard a worker he is. He's just a guy who likes to grind. And that's why he's where he is. And so I don't think he should be criticized for that at all. Definitely not. In this day and age with social media being so prevalent for a dude his age, I believe he's 24 at this point, to turn off social media shows you the type of focus that he has and how great he wants to be. Now, I would say from a money-making standpoint, and he's going to make in and around 80000 this year, so maybe he wouldn't hire somebody, but maybe somebody in his family wants to run his social media for him so he can use that as a revenue generator so he gets paid what he actually should be because he's at a bargain rate for the Lions. But him going without social media and not being on there all the time is part of the reason why he's been so successful to start the season three and out with the Lions and why he's leading the CFL in passing yards per game, well over 300 touchdowns thrown with nine and quarterback efficiency. I believe it's over 135, way above anybody else. So that's the reason why he's locked in and he is who he is. I almost was taken aback when I asked him about, well, does the hype fuel you? And his answer was, immediately sloughing it off. Like, no, 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 I don't want any of that kind of deal. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but I thought it might be something that he would feed off of. But having known him through the years, he's so locked into what he does. He doesn't want to hear compliments. He's almost kind of stealing one of the phrases that I've dialed up for myself is compliments create complacency. And I feel that's how Rourke has approached the start to the season in this hype machine that has gone wild you know generally a lot of people i feel like on the outside feel like the media can be critical but i mean for rourke they've just been praising this guy it doesn't matter if he turns the ball over three times now part of that was because he won but he also knows that on the other side of this there are likely going to be some losses even though you don't go into any competition thinking that you're going to lose but you're in pro football so you're going to have to deal with this adversity at some point he knows he's going to be criticized but he's probably hardest on himself regardless of what anybody else says about him. It's just the great things are different. He's been hyped to a different level that I don't ever think, at least in my time covering the league, we've seen anybody have this start of a hot at the quarterback position, this hot of a start, excuse me, at the quarterback position, and also be hyped this much at any other position since I've been covering the league now for over 10 years. Yeah, I, I think the only comparable in my mind is Cameron Wake another player in BC who had a tremendous start to his CFL career. And of course, two years later, he's down with the uh, Miami Dolphins going on to have a hundred sack NFL career. Now, I think the last thing that's important to note about Rourke is how that hype has been earned through his ability to sort of grind it out. Most people don't realize this, but we're, we praise his accuracy. We praise his arm strength. Those weren't necessarily hallmarks of Rourke's game coming out of Ohio. In fact, in, in a lot of scouting reports, those were deficits, but he came in over the course of the pandemic. He works with a kinesiologist out here in Vancouver named Rob Williams, who works with a lot of quarterbacks at the NCAA and CFL and even NFL level. And he's just put his head down and improved in all these aspects that a lot of people will tell you, these are not areas that quarterbacks 
are usually able to improve, right? You come into a league with a certain level of accuracy, a certain level of arm strength, and typically it stays the same. Those are not the things that guys are going to make massive leaps in. Rourke has made, in my mind, a massive leap in both categories. And it's a testament to the fact that despite all the praise he got out of Ohio, despite, you know, a lot of people thinking he could be a real legitimate CFL quarterback when he was drafted, he said, well, that's not good enough for me, right? I want to be better. And he's worked at it. And that's where we see him where he is today. It's really shown. I mean, some of that while he was at Ohio could be attributed to maybe not having a game-breaking receiver. They had a solid running game there, and that's what Rourke did a bunch of as well himself. So I think that's part of you also got to look at the scheme and the system that he's put in in college versus in the pros. And right now, Jordan McSimmick, the only Canadian offensive coordinator in the league, has been scheming it up wonderfully for Rourke, really helping elevate his confidence, especially early in games. And it's not like they're throwing the ball, you know, 50, 60 yards down the field, taking all these deep shots with a lot of people think is the sexy thing to do and what you should be doing to generate entertaining football. That's actually not the case. Rourke has been getting the ball out on time and in rhythm. And I think that has helped his accuracy. And yeah, it does certainly help that you have a guy like Lucky Whitehead, who I think right now is an unquestioned number one in the CFL, just for the simple fact that he can take the top off a of defense in a second. Certainly. And I will, I will uh, correct you on this. There was one elite receiver at Ohio University. It was Pappy White. He's now with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. So we'll move on to conversation about his quarterback who's struggling a little bit right now. Following their loss to Trey Ford and the Edmonton Elks, Dane Evans said he, quote, had no clue what's going on, unquote, in regards to his recent string of turnovers. The numbers here are he's thrown eight interceptions and lost four fumbles in the team's first four games, all losses. So is it time dunk for Hamilton to make a QB change? The Tiger Cats got to at least think about it. They signed Matthew Schultz in the offseason who has CFL experience. And you talk to people around the league, they're really high on Jamie Newman, their third-string quarterback, who I believe, JC, you like a lot. I'll let you gush about him in a second. Now he's young, still needs to learn the CFL game, and it probably would be dire straits if they went to him. But, yeah, you might think about putting Schultz in there just to really show Evans that, hey, man, you got to figure out a way to correct this. And if you don't know what's going on, you better not be out on the golf course working on your swing. You better be in the film room during the bye week. And for those who don't know, Evans actually has a separate Instagram account that he's dedicated just to golfing. Now, I get it. You're going to do other things outside of football. But in the hammer, where they take their Tiger Cat football very seriously, and you signed up for over $400,000 a year saying you want to give all you can to this team, then you better figure out what you don't know is happening on the field instead of being on the golf course just a couple days later. And I get it. You know, we all have different things that we like to do. It could be a relief. It could be a way for him to get away from it. But the optics, as more Ticats fans start to see this, aren't going to be ideal, especially if you're losing. And I can't remember a quarterback since I've been covering the league, and yeah, it's only been 10 years, that has turned the ball over this much and still continue to keep their job. If this was any other quarterback out there except for the elite-level guys like a Bo Levi Mitchell, I think they would have been on the bench a long time ago, and it probably would have happened mid-game in some of these instances because he's literally gifted two wins away at minimum and put them essentially 
out of reach in the first week against Saskatchewan. So the 0-4 record is certainly surprising for the Tiger Cats overall, but you can chalk it up to Evans turning the football over. Does the offensive line need to play better? Yes. There are people around the league that feel like that unit is not very good, and that's an Achilles heel that they might not be able to fix all season. That question is to be answered, but Evans cannot continue to keep turning the football over. Otherwise, at some point, there's going to be a different quarterback in there for Hamilton. And to your point, Dunk, after that game, you know, we saw on TSN the shots of Dang Evans, you know, almost inconsolable on the sidelines, knowing what I think is going to start happening in Hamilton, which is his position is in doubt. And the guy who had to come over to, to comfort him was Nick Arbuckle, the backup quarterback on the other team, because he lost his job after throwing just two touchdowns and six interceptions, right? Now we have 12 turnovers for Dang Evans to just five touchdowns scored, and he still has not been taken off the field at any point. To me, I don't know if it has to be permanent. I still like Dang Evans and some of the things he's been able to do in the past, but you've got to take a real hard look at your football team right now and give them a spark in some capacity because I don't have a tremendous amount of faith right now in Dan Evans' ability to to lead. I mean, I don't want a starting quarterback going in front of the media and saying, you know, I don't know what's going on. You, you totally can't be agree. clueless, right? You can be fired up. You can be angry. Uh, you know, you, you can put it all on yourself. You, you just can't be clueless. And when he says, I don't have a clue what's going on, like, I think the balls are in the right place. It's just bouncing weird. That's that's unacceptable, unacceptable to me as comments. And there are people who say, well, we're putting too much criticism on Dang Evans because, you know, X number of his interceptions have been deflections off receivers' hands or this and that. And what I'll say to that is, None of them have been A-plus throws. It's not as if he's putting them perfectly in the right spot on time and the receiver is bagging them up like a volleyball to the defender. You know, the two interceptions in this past game, you know, one was late and sort of in behind on a check down that the guy didn't expect it. The other was in basically triple coverage and was a throw that never should have been made. So those are not interceptions that I'm going to, you know, not give dang evans credit for right you know not all interceptions are the quarterback's fault but not all deflected interceptions aren't the quarterback's fault either he has to take responsibility for this and the other thing that concerns me is the fumbles right four lost fumbles in four games is unacceptable for any position he's got to take a real hard look at himself and figure out what's wrong start going out there with a wet slippery football and figure out how he's going to secure it because other otherwise Orlando Steinhauer has to make a move at that position or he's going to be the one who loses his job Steinhauer might be forced into it now we're obviously being really hard on Evans here but this is what you sign up for when you become the franchise guy and you make over four hundred thousand dollars in the CFL so let's just Put it out there like that because Steinauer is going to start to feel the pressure because ultimately, whether he wants to say it publicly or not, he would have been the guy to have the final say choosing Evans over Jeremiah Masoli. So the thing that stuck out to me about Arbuckle going over to Evans to try to console him was the fact that it was an opponent. None of his teammates were sitting there on the sideline with Evans. Nobody. Now, it's after a loss. So it's much different. They want to get into the locker room. But if that was Masoli, he would have been 
in the room, talking to his guys, taking accountability for the mistakes. That's what I think is lacking from this team, especially in offense, is the leadership. And if you're Steinauer looking at what's wrong with your football team, the only glaring thing, and yes, we don't have the coaches tape and they would probably, you know, argue with us and say, we don't really know what's going on. But the only glaring thing is the turnovers from Evans. So how are you going to stand up in front of your team next week when you come back after the bye and you've given these days, some the guys some days off and say, we're going to stick with Evans as our quarterback. And he's turned the ball over this many times. That's like going to your offensive lineman and saying, hey, we know you've whiffed on 12 blocks and got our quarterbacks killed, but we're going to stick with you. Or a defensive player, we know you've whiffed on 12 tackles and given up 12 touchdowns, kind of similar, I guess, but we're going to stick with you. The team knows, okay, whether they say it publicly or not, that Dane Evans has been turning the football over too much, and if you leave him in there too much longer – then other players are going to start to think they can get away with things. And the culture that Steinauer holds so near and dear to his heart will all of a sudden evaporate in front of his eyes. So there's a lot of pressure. Don't get it twisted there in Hamilton because they were expected to go back to the Grey Cup yet again, especially after choosing Evans. And fair or not, what people felt like was a core of that team that had been to -to back-to-back Grey Cups coming back to Hamilton. The defense has been fine. There are no issues there. And I like the guy, Jeff Reinbold, regardless of what he wants to say about Lawrence, right? Special teams have been okay. Michael Domagala could certainly be better. We've seen the ability of Stephen Dunmar Jr. and Tim White and Don Jackson and those guys on offense, the ability to be able to make plays. So the only thing is Evans turning the football over. The other thing here is the pressure is going to get cranked up on Tommy Condell. But this is the same guy that called the plays when the Tiger Cats had all kinds of records set in 2019 with that team when Masoli was the quarterback and then Evans came in after he suffered that ACL injury. So I don't necessarily think it's all fair to put it on Condell either because it's the turnovers. It's so cut and dry to me that those have to stop. I know Evans knows it, even though he doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, accountability is key here. Right now, if you're a coached with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Maybe you give him the bye week to square away and you give him one more game. But after that, a decision has to be made. If you don't see something from Dane Evans, I simply can't imagine the team continuing as they're going right now. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders rode a third quarter surge to victory over the Montreal Alouettes, but did so without a single catch from a banged up Duke Williams. Cody Fajardo praised his Number one receiver's grittiness, nonetheless. But is it time to be concerned about Williams and his mediocre start, we'll call it? Yeah, I I think it is. And now the the caveat here is we don't know all the details surrounding Williams' health. He's been banged up basically for the entire season thus far. And I think banged up in a multitude of different ways. But right now he's going out there and they're they're not sitting him for games. They're playing him and he's leaving the field more times with injuries than he is hauling in catches. In this past game, I think he had five targets. He didn't catch any of them. And I think he left the game three times with different ailments. To me, that's either an indication that something's wrong in terms of his performance and that he can't hold this in or that injury is not something he should be playing with right you're better off with a receiver who's at full strength even if he's not at the caliber 
of a Duke Williams. And right now through four games, he's sitting there, nine receptions, 159 yards, one touchdown. He should be the type of guy who's leading the league in receiving. That's what we've seen from Duke Williams in the past, right? Not now it's not there. He's letting balls that he normally would catch hit the turf and he's looking like he's struggling out there. And I think Ryder nation should be concerned about how the team's handling that. He had the big game in Montreal over hundred yards. And even after that though, Williams himself said he felt he played a bad game. So I think that tells you right there. Yes, he's being hard on himself because a 100-yard day is a pretty darn good one for most receivers out there. But he feels like he's not playing up to that level. And we don't know the severity of the injury, and he's likely not going to go into detail about it until probably the end of the season because he doesn't want defenders taking shots on it. But Williams has got to play better. You're a guy that's making over $250,000 as a receiver, the second highest non-paid quarterback in the league next to Kenny Lawler at 300000 and you got to perform, flat and simple. Otherwise, that salary is going to go down a year from now for sure. Williams certainly has the ability, so I would imagine a lot of this is injury-driven because it seemed like Fajardo and Williams had developed quickly a rapport last year and even early this season but he's got to get healthy so I think the initial smart decision to sit him down against Edmonton week two was a prudent one but maybe they got to sit him down here for a little bit longer and kind of now we're getting into the middle of the season to make sure he's healthy for the end of the season and what ultimately matters that run to the Grey Cup yeah I mean that 100 yard game against Montreal I think was deceptive as well I agree with Williams he didn't play a great game I think it, I'm recalling off the top of my head here, but it was four catches for a hundred and something in that touchdown, most of which came in garbage time, but he was targeted nine times. So there's five other times that he didn't come up with the ball for most starting caliber receivers, right? That's unacceptable to have that percentage of targets that you're not hauling in, right? He should be, you know, 200 yards. If he's got nine targets and four catches for a hundred, you know, he should be hauling in seven for, 165. That's the Duke Williams that we know. We haven't seen it yet. Now, I was very pleased with what I saw from the Saskatchewan offense in this follow-up game against Montreal because I criticized them last week for being a little overly reliant on Duke Williams, not giving enough touches to Keon Schaefer-Baker. I thought that was a big change this week. They got Keon Schaefer-Baker the ball in a variety of different ways. They had him on those jet sweeps. They got him around the edge. They got him the ball early and, and let him run with it, which resulted in like a 45-yard touchdown. That's the type of thing we should be seeing from the Saskatchewan offense. Right now, they need to pivot and make the Canadian the focus of it because Duke Williams is not up to his usual self right now. Yeah, it's just not healthy enough. I totally agree with you. University of Guelph bias aside, I'm generally actually harder on the Griffins when they come to the CFL. And Schaefer Baker is a weapon that needs to be utilized more. Put the football in his hands in multiple ways. And he showed you in that game against Montreal, he's going to make plays. We saw it last year when he burst onto the scene. And a lot of scouts were wondering, well, how did this dude do this? Because he didn't put up production at Guelph. Well, in all honesty, didn't really have a good quarterback there when he was playing for the Griffins. So he's the type of guy that can be a game changer for this offense. And also, if we're going to talk about dudes that are showing out for Saskatchewan, we need to talk about Jamal Morrow because he's looked great at running back, is a very 
quick cut kind of burst guy that can catch the ball of the backfield as well. And it looks like they're tailoring the offense more and more to go towards that way on the ground with Morrow. We saw some of those like old school semi buyback formation sets from those rough riders, which was surprising to see from Jason Moss, who's normally known as an offensive guy that likes to throw the ball all over the field. But it was a way that helped Fajardo play mistake free featured moral that controlled the pace of the game. And that's all you really need to do with the way the defense is playing. We got to talk about them a bunch because Jason Showers, the defense coordinator, has this unit going. They're obviously getting after the quarterback in a big way, not just the amount of sacks that they have. And, oh, by the way, Pete Robertson leads the CFL, a guy that was a no-name not too long ago, has all of a sudden burst on the scene and is leading the league right now in that category. But they got guys coming from all over at the quarterback position. I'm sure Trevor Harris was even looking from the side and out of the back of his helmet even after that game because there were green and white jersey flying all over at him. Yeah, that Saskatchewan defensive line is vicious. Every single one of them can get after the quarterback. So you can't double any one of those guys because someone else is going to hurt you. But I think the bigger focus should be on the other side of the trenches because you talk about Jason Moss and the way he changed that offense. He did that to help the offensive line, and he did that successfully. That was the key to me in this one, getting the ball out of Cody Fajardo's hands quickly to some of those underneath looks to, to Keon Schaefer-Baker, establishing the run game with extra blockers in there to get Jamal Morrow going helping out their young center, Logan Bandy, who they basically threw to the Wolves uh, two weeks ago in the first game against Montreal. Now, this time he had help and there was a massive improvement up front in the trenches. Now, the Toronto Argonauts lost to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on Monday after kicker Boris Beattie shanked a game-tying extra point attempt. Running back Andrew Harris, who was playing against his old team for the first time, said post-game he wanted the team to go for two in that situation. Would that have been the better call, Doc? Of course, of course. And that was Harris's exact quote post-game when he was asked about it. He wanted the chance to run the rock or potentially catch it against Winnipeg his former team, and win the game. Yeah, there was a little bit of time left, and Ryan Dinwiddie, the head coach, said he kind of thought maybe there was enough seconds where Winnipeg could have got down the field to kick a field goal, but it doesn't really matter if you're tied or if you're ahead by one in that situation. At least you're leading if you give it to Harris with the opportunity to go for two. Like, that was tailor-made from a story perspective and just overall with the momentum the Argos had at that time and the way Harris was running the ball, he averaged – I believe it was bang on five a carry, I think, in that game. 22 for 110. might have been just a little higher. But give the guy a rock. Let him have the chance. I know it's easy to say in hindsight, and I didn't even think of this before Beattie missed that kick. It was like a no-brainer. I even thought I saw Dinwiddie put up the two to go for it. But that wasn't the case. They miss it. Winnipeg gets a win. Now, there's no saying that they would have got two, and there would have been a lot of scrutiny on that as well. But I think most people would have understood giving Harris the ball in that situation, the opportunity to win against his former team. Absolutely. The kick is the expected call, right? It's the conservative call. But if you want to prove to your team, a team that we'll talk about in a little bit, has some problems culturally right now, I think. If you want to prove to them that you have faith in them as players, you call for that too. Because 
you cannot tell me it might be 65% of two point converts are successful, which is less than a PAT, but you cannot tell me after the years of watching Andrew Harris play after watching him in that game, that it wasn't a 99% likelihood that he was getting in that end zone. No one was stopping Andrew Harris three yards short of the goal line at that point. The guy is a monster. And we've seen in the past on some of these two-point attempts, these critical ones, that he will do whatever it takes to get in the end zone. I'm thinking back to the, the miracle in Montreal a few years back when they had that massive comeback for Winnipeg. And he, you know, had one hand on the ground and basically crawled into the end zone to score the game winning points. That's what you want in that situation. You want Andrew Harris with the ball in his hands. You want to trust your best player to make the best play and show to your entire team that you have that trust. Dingwingy went conservative and because it failed, I think it's going to have ramifications into how he's regarded in that locker room and how that team melds because had it been successful, they might not have cared, but guys there, no, they wanted to go for two. Andrew Harris wanted to go for two, and had they gone for it and failed, they would have put that on themselves. Now that they didn't get that chance, they're going to put it on the coaching staff. And Dinwiddie actually said it after the game that he didn't trust the offense in that situation, and I thought, wow, it's crazy to say that out loud. It's one thing to think it, but to actually verbalize it when your team had the momentum in that game. And in all honesty, if, you know, Brandon Banks doesn't fumble away the football and there's some other mistakes that the Argos made, Toronto could have won that game somewhat easily in my mind. Winnipeg didn't look like world beaters at all. So the fact that you verbalize it, you don't trust your offense in that situation. When you have Harris, who's been the best running back in the CFL for multiple years now, is a head scratcher. And I think it goes to exactly what you're getting at in terms of the culture in that locker room, that at least if you go for it and you don't get it, the players can say, all right, that's on us, right? We had the win. We had the opportunity to go for the victory. That's on us. Our coach trusts us in any situation, but there is going to be a lot of discussion in and around that Argos team about that situation, because over the bye week, they're going to talk about a bunch of different things and two and one as weird as it would be, to even think the Argos could have that record after I don't think they played particularly well would have been a much different feeling than one and two. Hmm. And in that game, Brandon Banks and offensive tackle Trayvon Tate appeared to get into a heated altercation on the Argos sideline. Head coach Ryan Dinwiddie called Banks out for what he called, quote, a temper tantrum, unquote. But what could the ramifications be for Toronto's locker room? I think they're struggling right now to gel as a team because they brought in all these big name veteran free agent presences, these Andrew Harris's, these Brandon Banks. And right now they're not playing like one unit. We've, we've seen from Brandon Banks in the past that he is prone to have these sort of outbursts. And it sort of got swept under the rug in Hamilton because he was the most dominant player in the league at the time. And he was simply, you know, not expendable. Like they couldn't punish him for it because they needed him so badly. I don't think that's the case anymore. He's played well thus far in Toronto, but he hasn't been, you know, the best receiver in the league by any stretch. He's just another component in that offense. And that's what he's going to be at this stage of his career. You cannot have a guy like that, you know, 
having an outburst on the sideline. And in particular, you cannot have, and I, I cannot stress this enough as a former offensive lineman, you can't have a skinny skill position guy who weighs 160 pounds ripping out an offensive lineman on the sideline that cannot happen because now you're going to create resentment between those position groups. Offensive linemen are a proud bunch and they don't want to be told what to do by receivers, particularly ones like Brandon Banks that maybe don't have the reputation for toughness and hard-nosed blocking. It might be different if it's Nick Lewis out there giving them the business. But that's going to sow division in a locker room that has not gelled yet. And Ryan Dinwiddie has to get on top of this as soon as possible because he's going to be the one who gets the blowback if this starts to fall apart. And according to TSN's Matthew Shianetti, there was possibly a water bottle thrown by Banks at Tate. That just adds another level to it. I understand it. From one perspective, McLeod Bethel-Thompson was saying it's like brothers, you fight and you love and you move on and brings you closer together. But that to me wasn't quite the same as fighting with a brother that you love. The fact that it went on for so long, and we didn't see Dinwiddie over there, to be honest. I thought he would have been right in the middle of there, calming everybody down. Now, I get it that you're in the middle of the game and you're making some of these decisions, but that was bigger than whatever was going on on the field. It could have left somebody else in charge to make a couple of the decisions that head coach needs to make because that situation got out of control for way too long. And there's nothing the referees are going to do about because it's within the Argos own team. So to me, that's a microcosm that could certainly spiral out of control. And you're right. It was an issue in Hamilton. There are people behind the scenes that will tell you that Banks was a high maintenance guy, but he was such a good kick returner before they even moved him to receiver full-time that they were willing to put up with it. But if you're not producing, then teams are going to start to think, well, is it really worth it to have a guy like that around? And Banks is 34. He's the oldest guy in that receiving group, has the most experience by far, has been to multiple Grey Cups. He should know how to handle himself by now, but it's clear that he hasn't learned as much as he has said in the past. And I know he might take issue with this, but it's the facts. People will tell you that from Hamilton, and it's probably part of the reason why they decided to move on from him is because they didn't want the younger players to be seeing these types of outbursts happen and thinking it was okay. It seems like Tim White and Stephen Dunbar Jr. and some of the younger receivers that are in Hamilton are pretty mild-mannered guys. Yes, they're enthusiastic about football, but they're not going to throw a temper tantrum like Banks is throwing. The fact that Dinwiddie alluded to other ones happening as well that we might not necessarily have seen or has been caught by TSN cameras shows you that it's already been a trend on a new team. Usually when you start a new job, you're well-behaved for a while until you kind of settle in. But the fact that Banks is doing this so early in the season on a new team shows you that it's an issue and it's been one that he's been dealing with or trying to curb, let's say, since he's been in Hamilton. And maybe it just is who he is and the Argos are going to have to either accept it or not. That's exactly what it's going to come down to because the Argos are going to have to make a decision if they can live with those sorts of antics, if Banks is a good enough player to put up with it now, or if they're going to cut ties and try and go forward with someone who maybe isn't as good but is more reliable emotionally in those situations. The real concern for me is not Banks. It's what's going on in that locker room and how Ryan Dinwiddie is handling it because you mentioned it. He doesn't come down 
uh, to the bench to deal with that situation, despite the fact that the team's on defense. So he doesn't really have to to worry about that at that stage. He's the head coach, the offensive coordinator. He should be dealing with the problems with his offense. Instead, it's Pinball Clemens who comes down from Mm -hmm. up on high and has to break up that fight, who has to control Brandon Banks. That should never happen. Your general manager should not have to come down to the sideline to break up fights. To me, that's a problem on the head coach. And to be frank, this is not the first time I've had issue with Ryan Didwee's handling of his team or some of his decision-making in-game. I'm starting to wonder whether he could be on the hot seat sooner rather than later in Toronto. It depends what happens with this situation, but this is certainly not the way that Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment likes their employees to act. And if it's getting out of control, they won't stand for it. And there are people last year that will talk about some of Dinwiddie's sideline antics and him being fired up. And yeah, we all get it that you're in a competitive atmosphere. It's professional sports, but you got to be head coach. So you got to act a little differently. Like there were people sending me gifts last year, was just caught quickly on camera of Dinwiddie doing the old DX crotch chop to the other team in one of the games last year. And there were multiple instances where Dinwiddie was doing those type of things. So what that ends up showing your team and the players is that that's all right. I'm not saying that we've seen it this year, but when you have people that are in and around the team talking about Dinwiddie doing these types of things, if the leadership is doing it, then that trickles on down. So you mentioned it. Yeah, the seat could heat up quicker for Dinwiddie because MLSE will not stand for those things. We've seen it in the past and they'll hold up to those high standards in the future. I don't necessarily think his seat is going to get super warm because the Argos are still somehow one and two. Well, really, thanks to David Cote. They were tight with the Bombers in that game who are still the reigning two-time Grey Cup champions. Yes, they got throttled in BC, but I think I think they kind of walked into a bit of a buzz, so even though they should have been more ready. But if you start lining these things up and see how the team acted after they lost the East final last year and Bethel Thompson pushing a cameraman and start adding those things up, those are not what winning football teams do. The teams that get to the Grey Cup and win the Grey Cup, they don't do those type of things. So that's why this issue needs to be stopped in Toronto. Yeah, you're the head coach. You're the boss. You have to have control of your locker room. In my mind, there's been several times throughout his tenure where Ryan Dinwiddie has not had control of his locker room, has not had control of his team. That's a serious concern for me. The Ottawa Red Blacks couldn't survive a tussle with the BC Lions in week four, falling to 0-3. Head coach Paul Lapley said this week that the play of quarterback Jeremiah Mazzoli hasn't been at fault for those losses. So what is really to blame for Ottawa's winless start? Yeah, you know, it's hard to say, and I don't really like to get into play calling, but honestly, they got to score more when they get in the red zone. They've been able to move the ball up and down the field, but we need to see them convert, whether that be at more creative play calling from Lapalise or completing passes or William Powell sticking it in there and getting it into the end zone. That's really been the difference for me, especially in the first couple losses against Winnipeg, is they couldn't get it in the end zone. Now, the Bombers have a great defense. We know it was historically great in 2021, and a bunch of those pieces are back. So that was going to be a difficult task against Winnipeg. But that's really the issue. And in the game against Nathan Rourke, it just seemed like Rourke was going to will the Lions to victory. But 
Ottawa still had their opportunities. And it seems like they're a little too inconsistent now in terms of on offense, getting drives going and then kind of stalling out here and there. But if they put a full 60-minute game together, and I hate saying it because it's a cliche, this Red Blacks team could be good. And I mean, we're talking about a team that's 0-3 that has lost by one score or less in every single one of their games so far this season that could easily be on the flip side of that and be 3-0. Well, when he was addressing sort of the criticism of Jeremiah Mazzoli on, on Ottawa Radio, when they're asking, do you expect more from your quarterback? Well, he said, I expect more from our head coach. True words have not been spoken because I think you're spot on, Justin Dunk, about their struggles offensively and how it's been rather lackluster play calling from Paul Lapolis. He's supposed to be the offensive guru. We saw how innovative he was in Winnipeg. Well, we haven't seen that yet in Ottawa. And maybe last year it was to be expected with the lack of talent on that roster. But this year they've got all the pieces they need and I still haven't seen it. It hasn't resulted in points. And I got to see it in person against the BC Lions. And yeah, that was a tough test. Uh, or I didn't see it in person. I, I watched it closely with the BC Lions, and that was a tough test, but I didn't see that Ottawa uh, offense change their game plan at all in terms of attacking the BC defense. That will give you some stuff underneath and let you march the field in certain situations. They didn't attack them like that. Mazzoli struggled to put up yards as a result, and I think it's the rigidity right now and the lack of creativity from Lopolis as the head coach and offensive coordinator that's really limiting this offense's potential. And it's different being a head coach because you have so many more decisions to make and manage as well, right? You're looking at all the plays that are happening on defense for possible review. You're talking about likely scheme over there with Mike Benavides, even though he's largely running the defense, you still want to know what's going on. You're trying to manage the clock. We saw how that was botched. I think it was one of the opening weeks. So there are so many things that you have to focus on versus just being an offensive coordinator. You can look at just the offense. So I don't necessarily think it's a shot against Lapolis for being uh, not quite as creative as he was in Winnipeg, but it's just that there's so many things on your plate. So they need to find a way to sort of parse that out, divvy it up so that some of these creative play calls or adjustments can happen in game for Ottawa. All right, let's get to it. Without Hodge here, we're still going to roll with it. Let's call it the Three Down Nation Heritage Moment. It's one day late, but on July 5th, 2017, the Canadian Football League officially announced Randy Ambrosi as their 14th commissioner. Since then, Ambrosi has seen the league through pandemic troubles, XFL debates, labor squabbles, and mandated two globals to be on the roster, spending millions of dollars in the process. What do you make of the commissioner's tenure thus far? Uh, well... The most positive thing I can say about Randy Ambrosi's tenure as commissioner is that the CFL finally has uh, leadership similar to the NFL and the NHL in the sense that all the fans hate the commissioner. So that is <laughs> that finally, I mean, in the past, in, in my lifetime, at least we've all liked the commissioner, or at least tolerated him. Uh, Randy Ambrosi is the first guy who could get booed out of a room like Roger Goodell or, uh, um, uh, Gary Bettman. So uh, progress, I guess. Uh, at least those commissioners that you named in the NFL and the NHL, Goodell and Bettman, uh, in and of themselves, have generated 
massive amounts of increased revenue for those leagues. All right. It's one thing for them to get booed, but the fact that they're making money for those leagues is the reason they're still there. The issue that I have with Ambrosi, if we're looking at what he's done since he's been in office, what can he slam the flag down on and say, this is what I'm leaving my legacy on the league as like, what is the one thing that we can look at and point at and say, Ambrosi did that, or he was a leader in doing that or helping doing that. And it really boosted the league because I can't find anything. I gave you one off the top of the show and saying he should have mandated one Canadian quarterback being on the roster. And that could have been it. And then he could have been cheerleading for Rourke and Ford, but that wasn't the case. He was busy spending literally millions of dollars to get a couple of global players on each roster. Now, JC, it's not a shot at your boys. I know you like the global players, but the fact that you're spending money outside of the country to bring in talent from outside of Canada, when we now know the hype that Canadian quarterbacks can create when they start, makes you look goofy, to be quite honest. So in my mind, the chance that Ambrosi has to leave a legacy on the league is to get a 10th team and potentially more. He's been talking already about Quebec City. He wants to get to 12. Well, let's just get to 10 before we start talking about 11 or 12, okay? Because I still think that's going to be a major hurdle unless there is a complete shift in politics out there and there becomes a big amount, let's say, of public funds, then it's going to have to be a privately funded stadium. And you and I are going out there to Halifax for Touchdown Atlantic. The game will be in Wolfville at Acadia University. It's already sold out. There's going to be a lot of hype and energy around it. And there's going to be a lot of talk about expansion. But until there is a stadium, there can't be any legitimate talk about it. I don't want to throw cold water on it, but that's the case. Now, maybe they have something that's going on behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, I'm sure a lot of fans across the country hope so. But what is missing from Ambrosi's tenure is what he can really say, honestly, that he's done. He's guided the league, largely been, I would say, a puppet for some of the other people on the board of governors. But what can he stand there and say that he's really done that has helped the league advance in a majorly positive way? I'll sit, wait, and listen. There's nothing he's done, Doug. That's the simple answer. And I think the bigger concern for me is not the fact that he hasn't found that magical silver bullet that all the CFL Board of Governors think is out there in terms of massive revenue growth. It's the fact that in the process in searching for it, he has weakened the league's identity. I think today the league is less sure of itself than it was five years ago when he took over. We are less certain of the things that make us the CFL, that make us unique, that make us proud to cheer for CFL teams and CFL players. Ambrosi has slowly, even though those things haven't been eliminated, he has worked to question them. He's worked to diminish them in this effort to find revenue elsewhere and I think that's a major problem that I hope he'll stop doing going forward as his commissionership continues. If we actually get the chance to talk to Ambrosi out east, JC, let's remind him that the C in CFL stands for? Canadian. All right, moving on. Three-minute drill. Former Alouette starting middle linebacker Trey Watson was cut by the team this week for what he claims were two verbal spats with unnamed personnel on the sideline. Watson quickly signed with Edmonton. Will the Owls' hardline stance be the Elks game? I think it will be. Trey Watson's a very talented player. I think 
Chris Jones isn't afraid to have a fiery individual on his defense. He seems to fit perfectly with what they want to do. Riders kicker Brett Lawther missed practice Tuesday to get x-rays on a potentially broken hand. Should that concern Rider Nation? It could a little bit, but my man, cast it up and go out and kick the football. You're not going to make tackles anyways, okay? On the punting side of things, the Riders reacquired Ozzie James Smith via trade after essentially renting him to Calgary to start the season while Cody Grace was injured. Was that a savvy move? I think it was, and the the added part of this is I think James Smith has been better for the Stampeders than Kari Vedvik has been for Saskatchewan to start the season. Maybe there's a switch now that they've reacquired him. Toronto Argonauts strong side linebacker Chris Edwards saw his suspension from the East final altercation with fans dropped from six games to three games this week after the CFL and CFLPA unveiled a new fan code of conduct. Is that a big announcement? It's not a major one that I think is going to have a tangible impact, but the fact that Edwards got his suspension reduced is most notable out of all that. The Edmonton Elks are providing free admission to children under 12 for the rest of the regular season. Is this another smart decision from Victor Quee? I think it's a brilliant decision. I'm, everyone will criticize, well, if you start giving things out for free, then people won't want to pay for it. No, that's not true. You want to get these young people in the building, get them hooked on the CFL, and give some financial relief for parents who are struggling right now so they can actually have some entertainment with their families. After playing them in back-to-back weeks, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders traded with the Montreal Alouettes to acquire returner Maria Alford. Does that make sense, Stump? It really does. The Riders could certainly infuse a playmaker there into their return game because Moro, who provided a boost there, is now their starting running back and looks pretty darn good in that role. The Dallas Cowboys have brought back Canadian kicker Liram Hairalahu for a third stint with the team. Can the Canuck win the starting job for America's team? I think he can. It's an open competition there with an undrafted free agent rookie. Liam Hairalahu has done nothing but impress when he's gotten the opportunity in the NFL. I think this is the time it could really be for real. Let's see what happens. That's it for this edition of the Three Down Nation podcast. Make sure to join us for the next episode next week. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.